0: We're also excited, well at least I am, I hope you are, to begin a brand new series today, uh, a four-week series answering life's toughest questions from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. You've got to love that name, right? There are some moms out there now that are getting ready to name their first child, Habakkuk. Sometimes it's pronounced Habakkuk, you may pronounce it that way. Uh, I pronounce it Habakkuk. And, uh, and so I'd like to invite you to turn to the book of Habakkuk for our scripture reading. And right now, happiness is sitting by side somebody who knows where it's at in the Bible. If you're not quite sure where to turn to in the Bible, obviously you can turn to the table of contents in your Bible, or you can just open it up in the middle, middle of your Bible, and then start going forward through some of the minor prophets, and you'll come to the book little tiny book of habakkuk and bill is going to come and lead us in our scripture reading and as he does why don't we stand for the reading of god's word
1: so a question that i had is how is how are we going to find out uh, how to answer toughest life's toughest questions from a minor prophet who lived 2,500 years ago, but we're excited to find out what our pastor has to say for us, or, uh, right, Bill. how he has to teach us. So reading from Habakkuk uh, chapter 1, uh, let's join together. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw, the prophets question to the Lord, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. The Lord replies to Habakkuk, Look upon the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come from violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings, and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes, and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. God in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your written word. Its guidance and instruction to our life is uh, so valuable and essential to every, uh, everything that, uh, that we uh, live for. And Father, we um, ascribe greatness to you and to your word, and we ask that you would speak to us through this tiny, uh, minor prophet, uh, Habakkuk, and, and how he um, questioned you, but yet you responded. And God, I pray that... As we question you, you uh, you, we would seek out to you uh, your word and your answers that are found in your word uh, to provide comfort and guidance in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
0: Answering life's toughest questions. People seem to be asking more questions than ever before. There's just something within human nature that wants to ask questions from stupid questions to very serious questions for example some stupid questions why is the word abbreviation so long you ever wondered that why does an alarm clock go off when it actually turns on right how about why is a professional who invests your money called a broker or If Jimmy cracks corn and no one cares, why is there a song about him? Right? Or how come you press harder on a remote control when you know the battery is dead? Please work! Or why is your elbow called the funny bone, but every time you bump it, you cry instead of laugh? Stupid questions, right? But people have some serious questions that they are asking as well. And i found that a lot of people who are somewhat struggling with their faith are struggling because they've got questions, but they don't necessarily have answers to those questions. Somewhere along the line, we have got this notion that it's a, well, perhaps a bad thing to even ask questions. But that's not always true. Sometimes it can be a very good thing to ask questions. And so maybe you're here this morning, and you're thinking to yourself, well, I've got some big-time questions, and nobody has any answers. That is, nobody except God. You may think that God doesn't like it when we ask questions, but you're wrong. God loves it when we ask Him questions. From the flaming questions of Job to the stubborn, show-me-questions of Doubting Thomas, when you really want answers, God says, hey, come on, bring it on. Ask me, ask me your questions and I'll answer you. Now it may not always be the answer that you want, and it may not always be in the way that you want it, but if you've got questions, pack them up and bring them to the Lord, because he's got some answers. And in this series, what we want to do is answer four of life's toughest questions from this Little, tiny, Old Testament book of Habakkuk. The first question we want to answer is, where is God when I need Him? Where is God when I need Him? Anybody here honest enough to admit that you've asked that question before in your life? Maybe you're even asking that question right now. Yeah, where is God when I need Him? In fact, it seems when we need God the most, that's when we have the hardest time sensing his presence, sensing his working. It's as if God is is nowhere to be found. It's as if he is silent in the midst of all the stuff that's going on in our lives and around the world. And this is the same question Habakkuk asked as well. But before we answer this question, we need to get a little background to this book that we're looking at. This book is one of 12 books in the Old Testament that are known as the Minor Prophets. Maybe you've heard that term before, but don't let that confuse you. Minor Prophets. These books are not minor because they're somehow less important, and we should just ignore them. Because, well, they're minor. They're not important. That's not the case. They're they're called minor because of their length. You may have noticed they're relatively short books. One or two chapters, three chapters in nature. Habakkuk is only three chapters long. In fact, I would encourage you to take some time this week and throughout this series to read through the book of Habakkuk. Read through it once a week to familiarize yourself with what's being written in it. Notice what it says again in the very first verse of chapter 1 here. It says, The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. Now, a little bit of background here of what he's saying. Habakkuk is the author, and his name means one who embraces. One who embraces. that, And that's exactly what Habakkuk does. He embraces God and God's people during a very difficult time in his life. And perhaps Habakkuk was the kind of guy you'd You'd run into at the office, or you'd run into in the neighborhood, or even here in church, and and he'd just give you a big bear hug. You know those kind of people. Other than his name, though, we know very little about this dude. He doesn't give us any information about himself, and he's not mentioned anywhere else in the Old Testament. Another background point here, Habakkuk wrote this book around 609 B.C., 609 B.C., leading up to the Babylonian captivity of Jerusalem and God's people in Judah. Habakkuk lived during the time of King Josiah. And what you need to understand about King Josiah, he was a very godly king. He was Judah's last hope before God's coming judgment when Josiah instituted spiritual reforms and he took steps to eliminate idol worship in the country. In fact, when Josiah began renovating the Old Testament temple, which was deteriorated with age, the workers actually found God's law, which had been forgotten by the previous generations. And after reading it, Josiah called the the people back to righteous living and God's standard of living according to his word. But as soon as King Josiah died, you can imagine spiritual decline just set right back in as the people reverted back to their old ways, their evil ways, and and even their rejection of God. And so it's during this time that Habakkuk began preaching to God's people. But here's the deal. God's people had no heart to listen to him. And God's people had no desire to return back to God. And that's when God kind of says, hey, listen, enough is enough. Judgment is now coming. And so it's against that backdrop that Habakkuk writes his book predicting God's coming judgment on God's people. We also learn something else about Habakkuk is he was a prophet. You may be going, well, what is a prophet? A prophet is one who is appointed by God to speak God's message to God's people. And what was God's message that he wanted Habakkuk to speak to the people? It was basically judgment for their continued sin. And as you can imagine, this message felt like a burden to proclaim. That's why Habakkuk writes the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. Habakkuk knew that his message that God told him to speak was not going to be very popular. After all, who wants to hear about a message of judgment? about how I'm living. None of us really want to hear that. He knows that he wasn't going to win any friends with this kind of message. But the book of Habakkuk, what's interesting, is more than just a prophecy about God's coming judgment. It's really a journal about his own personal journey of faith. And what we find here is an emotional dialogue between Habakkuk in God over his own personal questions. Even though this book was written over 2,500 years ago, Habakkuk wrestles with some of life's toughest questions that are still being asked to this very day. And that's why this little book is so relevant, so practical for us. So let's get our first tough question back on the table. Remember what it is? Where is God when I need Him? Notice how Habakkuk asked this question in the first four verses again. Let's look at it one more time. Notice what it says, beginning in verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear, even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity, just another word for sin, and cause me to see trouble for plundering and violence are before me. There is strife, and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. Wow. Habakkuk is throwing some pretty tough questions up to God. And he's holding nothing back. And what we see here is basically a four-part complaint about. God's silence. He's he's like, God, where are you? Why aren't you speaking to this issue? Can't you see what's going on with your people? I need to hear from you. And now, not later. You ever felt that way? About God? You ever complained about God's silence in your own life? Then join Habakkuk here, because that's the way he's feeling. Look at this, four-part complaint about God's silence. The first complaint, number one, Habakkuk is basically saying, hey, my prayers are unanswered. My prayers are unanswered. He cries out in verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Now that word cry, is not like a baby crying, although it may involve some tears. Rather, it means an intense welling, out of desperation, like, why is this happening to me? And we've all been there. We've all cried out that. Why is this happening in my life? Lord, what are you doing? At a time when your heart is breaking and your life is in danger, so what exactly is Habakkuk crying? Notice those two words, how long? Now, this is not some momentary plea. This is an ongoing petition from him. He's been praying maybe for weeks or even months or maybe even years without any answer from God. And maybe you feel the same way and you're asking, man, how long am I going to have to keep praying the same thing over and over again and God's not answering my prayers? It seems as if God is silent and he doesn't hear me. Well, this is a good time to stop and be reminded that God always answers prayers In one of four ways. Notice this coming up on the screen. First of all, God may answer what? He just may answer what? God's first answer may be what? Are, are, Are you talking to me? Because I don't hear you. You say, how can you say that, Bruce? Well, when you go to Psalm chapter 66, verse 18, it says this. I regard iniquity. If I regard iniquity in my heart, that is sin, the Lord will not hear me. If I have unconfessed sin in my heart, in other words, if I have an area of impurity or disobedience in my life, and I'm praying to God, God's like, are you talking to me? Because I'm not hearing you. Understand, God does not hear the prayers of his people, of his children, with unconfessed sin in their life. The only prayer that he will hear from us in that situation is, God, please forgive me. I am wrong. I have sinned. I need your forgiveness. He hears that prayer. So how many of our prayers go unheard because we don't humble ourselves and we don't ask God for forgiveness when we sin before him? So the first answer may be, God is answering, what? You're right, I'm not hearing you. I hear you, but I'm not answering that. The second prayer or answer may be no. God may answer no. God, will you do this? No. God, will you fix my husband? No. God, will you change my wife? No. God, will you get me out of this job? No. Sometimes God just says no. Why? Because God has a purpose for that in our lives. God is using that issue, that person, to change us to be more like Jesus Christ. We just learned about this, did we not, a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where the Apostle Paul tells us that God uses all things to conform us to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. And so God may be using that very thing or that very person in your life that you're asking him to change, and God's like, no, 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 I'm not changing that because that's what I'm using to make you more like Jesus. God's like that thing you hate. Oh, I love it. It's what's keeping you humble. It's what's keeping you dependent upon me. So my answer to that is no. A third answer God may say yes. Sometimes, even before we can finish praying, God says, Yep, done deal. God, will you heal me? Yes. God, will you meet this financial need? Yes. God, will you give me your grace to face this situation? Yes. God, will you give me strength to persevere? Yes. And we love it when God answers yes to our prayers, but probably the hardest answer to deal with is this last one. God may answer, wait. Lord, will you do this? Not now. Well, when? Not now. Yeah, I I hear that part, but when? Not now. Well, when will you tell me when? Not now. Waiting. There's very few of us that like to wait. That's why amusement parks sell those fast passes, so you can cut in line, while everybody else is waiting. And you just zip right through. And amusement parks make money on that, because amusement parks know our human nature doesn't like to wait. And it's no different in our spiritual lives. We don't want to wait on God. Waiting is a very difficult place to live your life. But sometimes God comes to us and he says, wait for reasons we don't know about or that are beyond even our understanding. And so no matter how God answers our prayers, we must believe that God's timing is always perfect. Where is God when I need him? Notice the second part of Habakkuk's complaint. His first complaint is, my prayers are unanswered his second complaint is my counsel is unheeded look at the second part of verse 2 he he says even cry out to you he's speaking to God remember this even cry out to you violence and you will not save now the second time he cries out the word means to to shout or to scream with a a loud voice In other words, because God is still silent, Habakkuk screams out to God about the violence and the wickedness that is all around him. And he's basically telling God about it. And he's giving God his own counsel on what, God, you need to do to save your people. But God seems to be ignoring the violence and the wickedness among his people and ignoring Habakkuk's counsel. Doesn't that bug you? Doesn't it bug you when people ignore the counsel you're giving them? Man, that just irritates me. You take time to talk to them, give them counsel, and then they walk out the door and do whatever they want. They just, it's like you never even said anything to them. Doesn't that bug you? That's the way Habakkuk felt about God ignoring his counsel. Ever try to give God some advice about how he needs to fix a problem in your life? And then you feel like God's ignoring you. He's ignoring your counsel and it's just going unheeded. And the problem is God doesn't take counsel from us. We take counsel from him. Well, Habakkuk's complaint doesn't stop there. Notice the third part. He says, number three, my circumstances are unbearable. Notice what he says in verse three. He cries out, why do you, and that you there is speaking to God, why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Now did you catch how Habakkuk moves from asking how long to God, and he's now asking God why? Habakkuk can't bear the circumstances of his culture any longer. And so really what he's asking is, God, why are you tolerating this culture of corruption that is all around me? Why aren't you doing anything about it? Where are you? You know, Habakkuk's culture was not unlike our own culture even today. It was a culture of corruption defined by violence, iniquity, trouble, plundering. It was a society that was marked by wickedness. Morality was just kind of tossed away as unnecessary. Strife and contention was rampant. In fact, those words there, strife and contention, it it describes verbal conflict. But it's verbal conflict that comes to blows physically. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you seen that? Two people jump out of their cars in road rage, go after one another. Two people at the office go after each other. Two coaches in a ball game on the field go after each other. You hear about it, you read about it. And they're like, shut your mouth or I'll shut it for you. You may hear that from people. And this was Habakkuk's culture, and he felt it was unbearable to try to live for God in this type of culture. Anyone feel that same way now about the culture we live in? Have you ever wished you could just live in the 1950s and move next door to the Cunninghams? Oh man, those were the happy days, right? Or how about living in the pioneer days and living next door to the Ingalls with a A little house on the prairie. I mean, let's be honest here, right? Come on, in 2014, we live in a world that is rampantly evil. And these are very challenging days to to stand up and to stand fast and to live as a man of righteousness and a woman of purity. And yet, this is what Habakkuk was feeling within himself when he said, God, why why are you showing me iniquity? and caused me to see trouble all around me. He must have felt like God was being so passive when when God could just speak the word and just wipe these people out. You see, Habakkuk knew what God did in Genesis 1 when he created the world with the word. He just spoke it into existence. And God has the power now to just command, to speak, and bingo, it's, it's wiped out. It's gone. But probably the scariest part of Habakkuk's complaint is found right here in verse 4. When he says, therefore the law is powerless. Speaking of God's law. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Do you know what he's saying? Basically Habakkuk is admitting to God, my faith here is unraveling. Habakkuk's faith was unraveling because he reasoned within his own mind that God had withdrawn his hand from the matter and God was the one who was allowing evil to rule the day. In fact, when he says that the the law is powerless, it means that there was a a total disregard for the law. Literally, the law is, is numbed or it's paralyzed and therefore it became powerless to penetrate people's hearts and to change them. In other words, Habakkuk was saying, God, I know you have your law, but the people just don't give a rip about it. And you don't seem to care what the wicked surround the righteous and that the perverse judgment is ruling the day. You ever feel that way about our culture when you watch the news on the internet? Or where you work or even where you live? can cause your faith to kind of just unravel a little bit. And as a result, Habakkuk concludes to himself, all hope is lost. He even accuses God of being indifferent to sin and inactive to do something about it. Because right now he's saying to himself, my prayers are unanswered. My counsel is unheeded. My circumstances are unbearable and my faith is unraveling. In essence, Habakkuk asks one of the toughest questions in life, where is God when I need him? But then we come to verse 5. Oh, verse 5 is awesome. Verse 5 is the turning point in these first 11 verses. Verse 5, everything is pivots it's God's turn now to set the record straight we're done with Habakkuk's wrong impressions and the way that it seems and and God now kind of steps to center stage and he takes the microphone and he says listen up no 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 that's the way you think it is but here's the way it really is look at verse five and notice what God says he says look among the nations and watch Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which which you would not believe though it were told you. Now we'll come back to this verse in a moment because it is the key verse in God's answer to this first question. But for now, look at the work that God is doing in the rest of these verses here 6 through 11. In verse 6, what's God doing? Look at it. God says, for indeed, I'm raising up the who? The Chaldeans. And you're like, all right, who are the Chaldeans? Oh, the Chaldeans. They were a very, very wicked people who were part of the Babylonian Empire. And God says here that he's raising them up to bring judgment on his people. Can God do that? Of course God can. He rules over all the nations of the world, including evil nations who oppose him. Verse 6 describes them as a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. In other words, they are bitter or revolting and had an unquenchable appetite for conquering new territory and taking captives, their conquerors. Verse 7 says they are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. In other words, these people, the Chaldeans, they had a reputation for being barbaric and ruthless, striking fear in the hearts of their enemies. They were a law unto themselves, and they didn't care what any other nations thought about them. In verses 8 and 9, God uses a number of pictures from nature to describe the Babylonians' military superiority and the barbaric treatment of their captives. Verse 8 describes them as these these fierce animals. Look what it says. Their horses are also swifter than leopards. Now that's fast. And more fierce than evening wolves. Basically, wolves who are on the hunt capture their prey in packs. Their charges charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. And then verse 9 describes them as a desert wind. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. In other words, sand you don't count itty bitty pieces of sand, do you not? It's too numerous to count. And that's the way their captives were. That's how conquering they were. Can anything then stop the Babylonians? Well, certainly God could stop them, but he was the very one who was raising them up. And that's why it says in verses 10 and 11, look at this. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They dried every stronghold for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense ascribing this power to his God not speaking of God Almighty, God Most High. In other words, what we're seeing here is that nothing human could hinder the Chaldeans' progress in conquering people and nations. The Babylonians had no respect for authority, whether kings or generals. They They laughed at gates and walls as they built their siege ramps and captured fortified cities. They worshipped the God of power and depended wholly on their own strength. And yes, God would judge the Babylonians too, as we'll see in the coming weeks. But for now, God, what's he doing? He's raising them up as an instrument in his very hand. God's going to use them. And that's the answer to our question. Where is God when I need him? And the answer is, God's answer is, listen, I am working even when you don't see it. Go back to verse 5 and look again at God's answer. He tells Habakkuk, and he tells us even now, he says, Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. Here's our problem and I include myself in this, our problem is we lack confidence in God when we look around us and we can't see him working. And so we cry out, where is God when I need him? And God says, listen, I am working even when you don't see it. Think about it. Habakkuk was sounding off on God with all his complaints about God being indifferent and inactive. And all the while, what was God doing? He was working. He was raising up and preparing the Babylonians to do his work. But all the while, Habakkuk is wondering in his heart, God, where are you? What are you doing? And he's doing a lot, even though I don't see it. And so God says to Habakkuk, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. That word astounded there, it's interesting. It literally means to be amazed or to be dumbfounded, astonished. Why? Because God says in the rest of verse 5, For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, even if I told you. In other words, what God is saying, the work that I am doing is so amazing, so incredible, and so unheard of, that even if I told you about it, you still wouldn't believe it anyways. Here's the point. Here's where it all comes down to. If you could see what God was doing right now on, about all the stuff that you're worrying about and wondering, where's God right now? You'd be like, no way. And God says, yes way. If God let you in on the work he's doing in your life, and in the world around us, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't even be able to comprehend it all. I don't know about you, but I love that about our God. I love the idea that God is working more than I can see, more than I can ever comprehend with my little finite mind. So the question here is where is God when I need Him? And God's answer is I'm working even when you don't see it. Do you believe that this morning? I hope so because it's true. Now, Let me leave you with a couple of lessons of hope. I want you to walk away here lifted up with hope in a God who is working, even when we don't see it. He's working in your life. He's working in the world around us. God is not dumbfounded by what's going on in our world today. He's not puzzled by what is happening in your life. God is sovereign over all things. And he rules over all people, all nations, And he is working his plan of redemption to a fulfillment, as we learned in Romans 8, where he will bring his children all the way to glory in heaven. And until then, he wants to use us to bring more people in on that plan of redemption. And how we accomplish that is by a verbal witness and by a life witness of keeping our trust in God, persevering through these things. So let me give you some hope to do just that. And know that God is working even when you don't see it with your human eyes. Because He's working behind the scenes so much of the time. Here's the first lesson I will never see God's work unless I wait on God. Understand, not everybody's going to see what God is doing, not everybody's going to see His work. Only the people who wait for it wait. Oh, man, now that's one of the most difficult things to do in the Christian life, as we already said. And yet, you find this idea of waiting on the Lord over and over and over again in the Bible. What is waiting? Well, one way to describe it, it's it's like putting the car in park when I want to press the turbo button. Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. But instead of waiting on God, what is our tendency to do? We have a tendency to do multiple things instead of wait on God. One is we run. We run ahead of God. We run from the problem. We run from relationships, all because we don't want to wait on God. And if you run, you will never see all that God wants to do in and through your life. We not only run, but we attack. We attack people. Some of us, we attack God himself. We attack the situation by trying to force the outcome, manipulate the outcome the way we want because we're tired of waiting on God to work. And so we force it. We attack it. But some of us, we just hole up in our homes, in our bedrooms, or in front of the TV, and we despair. We get depressed, discouraged, and we doubt God because he thinks he isn't working or he's not working fast enough. And then the rest of us, we all just fuss. We fuss at God, and we fuss at people, and then we sit at home, and we stew about it. But get this. Do you know that nobody has ever been disappointed when they waited on God? No one has. God has never been a minute late. He's always on time, and his work is always perfect. And when we don't wait on God, here's what happens. We miss out. We miss out on God's miracle, even on our transformation, the testimony of God's grace and intimacy with God during our time of waiting with him. The second lesson I want to leave you with is I will never wait on God, though, without faith in God. Isn't it interesting that God didn't really answer Habakkuk's question the way he wanted or expected? Did you notice that? Here's the question we ask. God, where are you when I need you? And God's answer is, I'm doing a work you wouldn't believe even if I told you. And we're like, that's not the question, God. And God says, yes, I know. But that's my answer. And God's answer is not always the answer we want nor the answer we expect. But let me tell you, it's the answer we need to accept by faith. There's no doubt. I'll be the first to raise my hands to this. There's no doubt, folks, that God's ways are mysterious. And that God's ways are misunderstood by many people. And that's why we must wait on God in faith. And we'll see next Sunday, this is the lesson Habakkuk had to learn. And as we'll see throughout this series, faith. In God is the key issue in answering life's toughest questions. That's why God tells Habakkuk later on in chapter 2, verse 4. It's the key verse in the whole book. But the just shall live by his faith. Listen to me. There are times, like Habakkuk, there are times in our life when we just need to embrace God in faith no matter what even when God's set ways are a mystery to us and here's the cool part when we embrace God in faith God will embrace you he will cling to you and he will hold you and he will love you and so let me leave you with this one last thought here God can be trusted do you believe that Listen, he's worthy of our highest confidence even when we don't see his working. We can wait on him in faith. So question, where is God when I need him? And the answer is, God is working even when I can't see it. I hope you'll take that home in your heart. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning, and oh, how we need to be reminded of your working in our lives and around the world. Even when we don't see it, even when we don't sense it, even when it seems like you are so far away and you're so silent. But God, you are not. You are working behind the scenes and even in your children's life, you promise that you are using all things to conform us, to make us like your son Jesus. But Lord... We'll be honest, it's hard to wait in faith. It's hard to wait on you. And so we come to you pleading for your grace to do just that, to strengthen us and to strengthen our faith, to be diligent and to persevere not give up on you, but to go out as your army, as your witnesses for your son, Jesus Christ. And so now as we come to this response time, Lord, I ask that you, by your spirit, would do a work in our hearts and that while we're sitting here, we would respond. And perhaps you're here this morning and you have a few questions of your own. Let me encourage you, as Zach sings, to bring those questions before God. God knows your heart. Just confess them. Say, God, man, I don't understand what you're doing and I need need you to help me. Ask ask him for the grace to wait on him in faith. Ask him for the grace to persevere. And so while Zach sings, let me encourage you to respond in prayer to God.